If you would turn, as you're standing for the scripture reading this morning, to the book of Philippians, Philippians chapter 2. Philippians chapter 2, and I'll read for us verses 1 through 11. Philippians chapter 2, 1 through 11. So if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interest, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Good morning, everybody. I feel like I was just up here. Um, it's good to be with everybody again. We've been gone for a few weeks, so. Uh, but it is my absolute privilege to bring you the Word of God today. Let's pray and ask Him for His help before we dig in. Father God, we, we come to you now, to your Word, looking for you to change our, our hearts and our minds to make us more like your Son, Jesus Christ. Father, I know that I am not up to that task. Um, just studying this scripture for the last couple of weeks uh, ha has made that abundantly clear. Um, I, am, I am not fit to proclaim some, some of these great truths. And so, Lord, if, if there is any, any hope of, of impacting the, the people here today, it'll have to be done through you, through your Holy Spirit. And so, Holy Spirit, that is what we pray for, that you would eliminate me from this and take the Word of God and impress it upon hearts and minds that none of us would leave unchanged today. We ask these things for Christ's sake. Amen. I know many of you have been praying for our family as, as we've been traveling around with graduation and everything, and, and we, we do greatly appreciate those prayers. Um, I had a revelation on the trip that I wanted to share with you guys. It's a big one, so, so brace yourselves. We, uh, we traveled some 3,000 miles there and back again, right? And, and I came to this realization. Gas is like super expensive, like super expensive. Um, I think in Chicago, we paid like over $5 a gallon um, just, just to fill up the the cheap stuff in the car. You know, I'm looking to get into ministry and we're not putting premium in the car. Um, gas is expensive. Groceries are expensive. 
They say that uh, record inflation is part of that. Uh, I, I tend to agree with that. I, I think that's true. Um, inflation, at least partially brought about by shutting down the economy for a certain amount of time during, during COVID. Uh, supply chain issues are causing shortages at, at random intervals on random idol, uh, items. And, and this is a new thing in my lifetime. Now, I, I, before the last two years, I've never gone to the grocery store and, and each time there's just random stuff out of stock, you know, just randomly blank shelves and it's, it's different every time. Uh, tangent to that would be mothers being unable to find formula for their children. And we can, we can move from economics to social issues, uh, and, and we find that same equivalent level of chaos in our social issues, don't we? I mean, surely you've seen the outrage over Florida just trying to protect children from LGBT agendas. Outrage over it. Uh, that is indoctrination that is not just in Florida. This is, this is widespread now. Tiny example, Fox News, who's supposed to be the conservative media outlet, right? Um, they just hired someone who identifies as transgender, someone who looked at the image of God in themselves and said, no, thank you, I will recreate myself in whatever image I want. And they not just hired them, but they celebrated it. The CEO of Fox said this. They said this person is, quote, an inspiration a trailblazer in their community, and a tremendous asset to have at Fox News. Now, that's the conservative media outlet, right? Or what about abortion? I tell you what, brothers and sisters, abortion has absolutely no scientific or moral grounds on which to stand. None. Every single argument from science and morality lands squarely in favor of the evangelical stance on abortion. Every single one. And despite that, despite the indisputable, indisputable science that these little babies, these tiny humans, are indeed tiny humans, despite that, have we not witnessed an incoherent rage from people to defend, to establish, and, and to fight for the legal ability to kill their own children. We could go further into other news from this week. I'm not ready to do that. And these are all national level issues, but if you bring it home to the personal level, of course, each one of us finds ourselves burdened with trials, temptations. So what is going on? Has God abandoned us as Christians? Has he given his authority over to evil men? There is a great temptation for us to stand here as the disciples stood on their ship in the storm and ask, don't you care? Don't you care if we drown God? Brothers and sisters, I am here today to declare to you a word from God, and that word is comfort. 
I am here to deliver to you a message from God himself, and you can hear it now and plainly up front. The Lord alone is God, and there is no other. He has not given up his authority. He has not left his people in the storm. If you are a Christian in this room right now, he is with you now, and he is with you always. And to show this, I want to open to Isaiah. Isaiah 46. So if you just, you know, open to the middle of your Bibles, you're going to hit Psalms probably, right? Psalms, Proverbs. Shortly thereafter, you're going to find Isaiah. Isaiah 46, I'm going to start in verse 3. Listen to me, O house of Jacob, all the remnant of the house of Israel who have been born by me from before your birth, carried from the womb. Even to your old age I am he, and to gray hairs I will carry you. I have made... And I will bear, I will carry, and will save. That's comforting, isn't it? I think we could uh, stop the sermon right there and be okay. Uh, but if you give me just a few more minutes to unpack some of it for you, we'll get a little more breadth, a little more depth with it. It's always important to look at the context of a verse in order to really understand it. And, and I think it's especially important when you approach some Old Testament passages because we don't want to misunderstand these things. We don't want to misapply these things. Maybe this verse isn't intended for us at all. So I did that. I went back. I looked at the context, and I came away with three main points that I want to share with you. So for you note-takers, you can write these down. First, I want to look at what options exist for the non-Christian in a seemingly chaotic world. Now, they are all inherently silly and useless, and I thought of a lot of different words to describe this, but we don't say many of them in our house. So we're, we're going to go with silly. We're going to go with silly. Then I want to show you that the world is not as chaotic as it seems, that God is still very much in control, and he alone is God. We'll call that supremacy. Second point will be supremacy. And then finally, I want to impress upon you the love of God in the person of Jesus Christ. And there we'll look at the sacrifice of Christ. Sacrifice. So silliness, supremacy, sacrifice. Like I said, the, the first two points are really context for the third, allowing us to, to end where we began. So that's what's about to happen. So in your notes, let us begin by looking at the silliness of those seeking refuge from this worldly chaos outside of God and who he is. So in our fallen, sinful world, there's all sorts of pain and chaos, just like we have discussed. Even those who do not trust in God recognize that. There are plenty of non-Christians who look at the world and they know that bad things are happening. They know the difference from good and evil, and they know when the world seems upside down. This is because the stamp of God is still on their souls. They are still men and women 
created in the image of God. In their heart of hearts, they know. They know. In their heart of hearts, God wrote some level of morality, and for those that haven't suppressed it, they see a broken world and they're scared. Rightfully frightened. They know things aren't as they should be, but they don't know what to do about it. They are still separated from God, and so they don't know where to turn. The world needs more help than they can offer. They know that. They know they can't accomplish all that they would hope to accomplish. They cannot change the things that are wrong. And so without God to turn to, they turn to idols. Look in your Bibles with me. You're already in Isaiah 46. If you back up just a little bit. We'll go to Isaiah 44, 12 through 20 is what I'm about to read here. The ironsmith takes a cutting tool and works it over the coals. He fashions it with hammers and works it with his strong arm. He becomes hungry and his strength fails. He drinks no water and he is faint. So here, God is pointing out that this man, this ironsmith, he's just a mere man. If he doesn't drink water, he's going to get thirsty and tired. If he doesn't eat, he's not going to be able to do his job. He is a needy creature. And back in verse 13, the carpenter stretches a line. He marks it out with a pencil. He shapes it with planes and marks it with a compass. He shapes it into the figure of a man, with the beauty of a man, to dwell in a house. He cuts down cedars, he chooses a cypress tree or an oak, and lets it grow strong among the trees of the forest. He plants a cedar, and the rain nourishes it. So now, the picture is shifting from Ironsmith, who made the cutting tools that this carpenter is using. This carpenter is now using those cutting tools to shape the things he wants to shape. He works wood with it. He has a forest in which these trees grow, if, of course, they get enough rain. That's the part here that's not in his control. The rain nourishes it, not the carpenter. But nonetheless, he is a caretaker for these trees until they are ready to be cut down for whatever purpose he has for them. He cares for them, he cuts them, and then he shapes them. The carpenter is master over the tree. The tree doesn't shape the carpenter into anything. The tree doesn't grow the man, and the tree doesn't own a field filled with men that he's growing to cut into some kind of purpose. No, the man has dominion over the trees, and that makes sense to us sitting here because, of course, that's how God created the world, right? And then we see what this man does with this. So back in verse 15. Then it becomes fuel for a man. He takes a part of it and warms himself. He kindles a fire and bakes bread. Also, he makes a god and worships it. He makes it an idol and falls down before it. Half of it he burns in the fire. Over the half, he eats meat, he roasts it, and is satisfied. Also, he warms himself and says, Aha, I am warm, I have seen the fire. And the rest of it, he makes into a god, his idol, 
and falls down to it and worships it. He prays to it and says, deliver me for you are my God. Half of it he uses as his servant for his human needs. And then the other half he worships. This is some next level nonsense. Who is the master in this relationship? Is it the carpenter or is it the wood? Who cultivated who? Who carried who out of the forest? Who is serving whose needs? Who crafted who into this or that? If the only two things in the whole universe were the wood and this carpenter, well, clearly the wood should worship the man. Not the other way around. That's just ridiculous. And verse 19 and onward points this out. No one considers, nor is there knowledge or discernment to say, half of it I burned in the fire. I also baked bread on its coals. I roasted meat and have eaten. And shall I make the rest of it an abomination? Shall I fall down before a block of wood? He feeds on ashes. A deluded heart has led him astray. He cannot deliver himself or say, is there not a lie in my right hand? That gets less silly towards the end there, doesn't it? We've talked about this before from this pulpit, but it's, it's not the focus of this message. But pause for a moment and bring to the front of your mind the fact that the human condition is desperate. It's desperate. Sin has made man insane. It really has. His heart is so corrupted by the effects of sin that to cope in a world of sin, he worships things that he himself created, and he can't even recognize the folly of that. His reality has been skewed. He can't see it rightly, and there is nothing within him that can correct it. If salvation comes to this man, That salvation is going to have to come from the outside, not the inside of him. And you might say to me, well, Kent, that's fantastic. That's great. Uh, But I've not been over to anyone's house recently and found them worshiping some idol on their mantle. I haven't seen that. I'll, I'll just ask, have you not? Look again. So take a man that works and works, works and works and works, taking every advancing opportunity so that he might gain some sort of status or importance for himself. Because in status and importance, by being someone, turning himself into someone, maybe his whole life won't seem meaningless when death comes for him. Maybe through that legacy, he can extend his life. And so he worships at the altar of his own work, praying that through it, he finds some sort of immortality. Maybe another person thinks that if they can do things just right, just so, if I plan everything to the T, it will go the way I want it to go. Maybe I can control the future if I do this. This is a sort of anxiety that causes them to overplan, overthink, 
overanalyze, carefully calculate each word they are going to say, and do that for the five different possible scenarios that are about to come. With the right tools and the right planning, they think they can control the future, and so they worship at the altar of their planner or their spreadsheet. We can't go further into these things, but there are those that worship the stock market, the media, their own safety and comfort. Sometimes they don't even know what they pray to, but they pray. They say, oh, I hope that works out for you. Hope in what? What are you hoping in? Hope because of what? The universe? Have you heard people say that? Uh, the universe will give us a sign, that sort of thing. Is, is, is the universe a personal entity? And if it is not, why are you putting your trust in it? This doesn't make sense. And God, of course, fires back at all of this silliness. He fires back against this insanity. He says to the idolater, essentially, who do you think you are? How are you going to acknowledge some chunk of wood as God in my place? Don't you know who you're offending? And this is the second point. This is the supremacy of God over all things. In 43.11, you don't have to turn there. I'm going to list a whole bunch here. In 43.11, God says, I, I am the Lord, and besides me there is no Savior. In 44.6, I am the first and the last. Besides me, there is no God. In verse 8, is there a God besides me? I know not any. And then 45.5, I am the Lord and there is no other. Again, in verse 6, he says, I am the Lord and there is no other. And then finally, in verse 18, he says, For thus says the Lord who created the heavens, he is God. Who formed the earth and made it, he established it. He did not create it empty. He formed it to be inhabited. I am the Lord and there is no other. I did not speak in secret in a land of darkness. I did not say to the offspring of Jacob, seek me in vain. I, the Lord, speak truth. I declare what is right. Assemble yourselves. Come and draw near together, you survivors of the nations. They have no knowledge who carry about their wooden idols and keep praying to a God that cannot save. Declare and present your case. Let them take counsel together. Who told this long ago? Who declared it of old? Was it not I, the Lord, and there is no other God besides me, a righteous God and Savior? There is none besides me. And 46.9, I am God and there is no other. Church, God is supreme and he is perfectly holy. There is no other. I don't care if it's something tangible like a chunk of wood or something more psychological like the universe. There is no one waiting for you on the backside of that prayer. There is no other. You either come to God or you come to no one. Those are the options. The universe cannot help you. Allah cannot help you. There is no Buddha. There are no Hindu deities. There is no other. The Lord is God. He controls all things. What he says he does. 
In 43.13, he says, There is none who can deliver from my hand. I work, and who can turn it back? And if you go to chapter 45, verse 7, we can take it a step further. And, and God says this. He says, I form light and create darkness. I make well-being and create calamity. I am the Lord who does all these things. The Lord is God and there is no other. Any decent catechism in the first few pages is going to ask this question. It's going to ask, who is God? God is the creator of everyone and everything and nothing happens except through him and by his will. Nothing. And I think if we, if we stopped there, if scripture stopped there, then I think we would be forced to conclude that God does not love us. Don't say yes to that, little Alan. That's if Scripture stopped there. I think we'd be forced to conclude that the bad things that happen to Christians in this world are because God does them without a reason. But hallelujah, that is not who God is. And for those of us in Christ, we know this already. We know that. God loved us while we were yet sinners and sent Christ to die in our place to take our sins. So what do we make of this chaos all around, of the trials that we face? Go to chapter 45, verse four. And you see these words, for the sake of my servant Jacob and Israel my chosen, for the sake of my servant Jacob, and Israel my chosen. I'll talk about exactly what God is addressing in, in this particular text, but recognize he's, he's talking about the calamity on Israel is for their sake. And I can't take the time to turn there today, and this really isn't what this particular text is about, but you can go home and read the book of James, and James assures us that God is good all the time, and all the time God is good. He is the Father of lights with it, whom there is no shadow or variation due to change. He is always good. And though he may permit trials and temptations to come to us, it is not for cruelty, but it is for training. It is for training. These things come to the Christian to train us into Christ's likeness. For those in Christ, there is no wrath or judgment of God left. Christ took all that. He took all the wrath and the judgment. It's gone. I know the world seems crazy. I know you must have struggles in your life. I know life is hard, but listen, the Lord is God and there is no other, and he cares for his people. And someone might be thinking, Kent, this is the Old Testament. The header of chapter 45 says God is speaking to Cyrus. And you yourself just quoted a verse that says, my servant Jacob, Israel my chosen. And last I looked, I'm not related to Jacob. I would tell you, but you are. But you are. We can turn to this one. Keep your thumb in Isaiah because we're going to be right back. But if you go to uh, Romans, let's go to Romans. You're fast forwarding all the way to the New Testament, getting past Acts. We find Romans 9, 
8, 9 verse 8. Nope, I'm going to back up. Let's do 9 verse 6. But it is not as though the word of God has failed, for not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel, and not all are children of Abraham because they are his offspring. But through Isaac shall your offspring be named. This means that it is not the children of the flesh who are the children of God, but the children of the promise are counted as offspring. And if you flip forward to Galatians, it's, it's not far, it's just a few pages. Galatians 3, 26. For in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. For as many of you as were baptized in Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is neither male nor female. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to the promise. Christian, in this room, you are a son or daughter of Abraham because Jesus Christ has made you his own. All the promises of Scripture are yes and amen in Christ, and you yourself are in Christ. You are unified with Christ and therefore heir to the promises. Does that make sense? I don't want you to hear that and think the wrong thing, so very quickly I want to help you understand that the, the promises of the Old Testament apply to you, but how they apply to you. That's what I want you to understand. So two rules of thumb that I have uh, unabashedly stolen from John Piper. All right, these are, these are his, not mine. But I am helped by them, so I want to pass them on to you. We can talk more about what promises apply and how afterwards if you want to come find me. But the two rules that Piper gives is this. First, recognizing that you are in fact a child of Abraham through Christ and thus you do have a legitimate claim to these promises. That's rule one. That's what we just went through. Second, recognize that with the coming of Christ and the revelations that he brought about, some of those Old Testament promises and, and their fulfillment look different this side of Christ. A good example here is that, you know, an Old Testament promise of forgiveness through sacrifice. Well, that promise still stands, but we embrace it through Christ's sacrifice. So we claim the promise of forgiveness, but with the advent of Christ, the avenue is different. I could spend all day here, but I can't. So come find me afterwards. I started on that tangent because someone may have been wondering if what we talked about so far, the idolaters that are silly, the God that is God alone and there is no other, that he is sovereign and supreme over everything and that he even works calamity for his people? Does that really apply to us? The answer is yes. But a fair follow-on question is, so what? So what? What do I do with this information? And now we're back to Isaiah 46. Come back to Isaiah 46. We're going to read it. Bell bows down, Nebo stoops. Uh, Bell was the god of the sun to the Babylonians. Nebo was his son. You can read about those online if you want. 
Bell bows down, Nebo stoops. Their idols are on beasts and livestock. These things you carry are born as burdens on weary beasts. Now look at that statement and, and just dwell on it with me for a moment. These idols, these idols that men have made, they are a burden that must be carried. Those that carry them expel their energy in doing so. Verse 2, they stoop, they bow down together. They cannot save the burden, but themselves go into captivity. And this is speaking about the coming destruction of Babylon here, that their gods cannot save them, and that the people of Babylon will bear their gods as they walk into captivity. And then in our next two verses here. Listen to me, O house of Jacob, all the remnant of Israel who have been born by me from before your birth, carried from the womb. Even to your old age, I am he. Into gray hairs, I will carry you. I have made and I will bear. I will carry and will save. That's you. That's you, brothers and sisters. Do you see the parallels between men and their idols and God and you? You have been born by God from before your birth. You are the burden. You are the helpless one. You are the one that can do nothing on its own. You are the one shaped and formed into something with meaning. And that is why we, the created, worship him the creator. That is the right order of things. The man had to carry wood from the forest to make his idol. Your God, your God does not need to be carried. He carries you. The man had to carve out of wood his idol. God isn't defined by you, but rather created. uh, He creates you and he creates your purpose and defines that. The idol is then a burden on a beast and it is born from one place to another as it is carried there. Brothers and sisters, God carries you effortlessly. He does not grow tired and you actually grow strengthened. You cannot burden an omnipotent God. The idol is then a burden on a beast carried to and fro. This is we are carried by God. The idol can save no one. Not only can God save, but God will save. Did you catch that in these verses? Look at three and four again. Look at three and four. If verses three and four simply said that God could carry you, that God can carry you, God could save you, well then that would only serve to tell us of his power. But it says he will do these things. And so this verse tells us of his goodness and his love. Just because someone can do something doesn't mean they will. It is the character that determines if they will. And our God is the father of lights in whom there is no shadow or variation due to change. He will save. That's the so what. 
In your notes, you can file everything else here under sacrifice. When, when your world is in chaos, when you cannot see the goodness of God's plan, then you trust the goodness of his heart. You trust his character. And this is seen no better place than the cross. If you want proof of God's love, of the lengths that he will go to, to bear, to carry, and to save, then you must look to the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ in your dark times. And there we will find all the truth and assurance that we need. Christ is no silly idol. He will bear, he will carry, and he will save. Isaiah 45, 22 says, Turn to me and be saved, all the ends of the earth, for I am God and there is no other. By myself I have sworn, from my mouth has gone out in righteousness a word that shall not return. To me every knee shall bow and every tongue shall swear allegiance. Now, does that sound familiar? That's why we read it from Philippians at the beginning here. Christ has been given the name above all names, and every knee will bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord and that there is no other. You can trust his promise here in Isaiah, and if you would just look at the cross, you would see all that you need to see to believe it. It's just that sometimes... Sometimes salvation doesn't look like salvation. Not to us. But even in moments when hope seems lost, the Christian can say, my God will carry me. I want you to think of the crucifixion with me. You can, you can close your eyes if it helps to imagine that scene. But the cross is still on the ground. Jesus, um, I have to imagine they tied his arms to it. Otherwise, he's going to react when the nails come in. So he's either, he's either pinned down or tied down so that his arms won't move when they begin to nail him there. The man with the hammer aligns the spike to Christ's hands. I want you to imagine the sound of the hammer hitting the nails. Imagine the agony on Christ's face each time it hits. And when you hear that awful sound, when it rings out loud and clear, Hear this, even to your old age, I am he, and to gray hairs, I will carry you. I have made, and I will bear, I will carry, and I will save. Isaiah 49 says, But Zion will say, The Lord has forsaken me. My Lord has forgotten me. And the Lord responds, Can a woman forget her nursing child? She should have no compassion on the son of her womb. That seems impossible to us, but just in case, God says this, Even these may forget, yet I will not forget you. Behold, I have engraved you on the palms of my hands. Let's pray. Father, we just praise you for who you are, that you are God and there is no other. And Lord, as I stand here now, I just have hymns rolling through my mind. 
God, teach us to, to turn our eyes upon Jesus. Teach us to look full in his wonderful face that all the things of earth may grow strangely dim. Pray for my brothers and sisters here this morning that they would find comfort and encouragement in your word. That they would feel your love in the darkness. That you would give us the faith we need trust you even when things seem dark. Help us to take that to a world that doesn't have it, to a world that's lost, Lord. Make each one of us an evangelist for your sake. Amen. Amen, Amen and thank you, brother. We come now to the Lord's table, and what a reminder of, of what we celebrate when we come to the table, that it is God who has made us, given us purpose, it is God who has sent His Son to bear our burden, and there is no other. Beloved, it is in the broken body and the shed blood of our Lord that we will find forgiveness of sins or, or it is nowhere. It is in the gospel of God sending his son to die in our stead and living in righteousness for our righteousness. It is there that we will find peace with God or it is nowhere else. This is another one of those gracious acts of God to give us this tangible reminder that we take Christ's body and blood to ourselves, that that is our salvation, that that is our hope. So if that is your personal testimony, if that is your claim to peace with God, if you are walking in obedience with Christ, to Christ, then I invite you to come and receive of this blessed reminder that your, your faith might be strengthened and encouraged. And in just a moment, we will take of them together. Join me in prayer. Father, we do look to your Son we are thankful for reminders of, of where our hope is, where our peace with you comes from. Reminders in the Lord's table that we enjoy and celebrate and remember every week. Reminders in the preaching of your word and the gospel clearly proclaimed and laid out for us. How beautiful it is that we can see the gospel presence in the Old Testament looking forward and then realized in Christ. This is, this is the story of history. Your story for mankind that man would fall, yet you had a purpose even in that. that you worked weaving the fabric of history and time 
in this beautiful mosaic. We see everything pointing to and resting on the person and the work of Christ. Father, strengthen our faith. Encourage our souls. Give us peace and joy in the finished work of our Savior and the knowledge that we could not earn what he has done for us. Yet you have sent him, he has paid, and we have the promise of being made like him. For the glory of your name. Praise in Jesus' name. Amen. We read in 1 Corinthians 11, starting in verse 23. Paul says, For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way also he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. And beloved, that is our lot in this life, that we continue to proclaim the death of our Lord, the death of God who came to die for us, not the God who called us to die for him, to sacrifice ourselves, that we might be made worthy or assuage him, but the God that sent his son to die for us, and then raised him to newness of life, that we might have life in him.